Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. When it comes to solving climate change, where do we start? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Project Drawdown has published a list of top solutions for climate change, impactful actions already in existence that not only reduce carbon emissions, but also improve lives, create jobs, and generate community resilience. Besides the obvious, clean energy and saving the rainforest, the checklist also includes some surprising items, such as reducing food waste and improving educational opportunities for girls. If women have the opportunity to be able to have a voice and be agents in their community, in their country, globally. We have the opportunity to have the kind of innovation that we need to be able to combat this. Lois Kwam is the U.S. CEO of Pathfinder International, an organization that champions women's education and reproductive freedom. But increasing access to family planning is just one piece of the puzzle. According to Jonathan Foley, executive director of Project Drawdown, it almost doesn't matter where we start as long as we do something. But at the end of the day, it's going to be behavior change by all of us is necessary. It's going to be policy change, business operations change, and changes in capital, money. So don't pick one lever, pull them all. You know, every bloody one you can find. But we've all got to start somewhere. How to sort through the many daunting tasks ahead of us. On today's program, we'll talk about carbon drawdown and how to achieve it, what should be done, what can be done, and what is being done. And hopefully you'll come away with some ideas for your own climate to-do list. My guests are Jonathan Foley of Project Drawdown, Kate Brandt, Sustainability Officer at Google, and Lois Quam. Quam started out in the healthcare field before joining Pathfinder International, but it was a life-changing visit to the Arctic and what she saw there that inspired her to take on the battle against climate change. I'm a Norwegian-American and I have three sons. And I wanted to take them to meet their relatives in Norway. And a lot of my family in Norway lives in what they call the High North, the Arctic region of Norway, um, uh, in, in and around Tromso. And I took my sons for that visit. Um, and something happened to me there that, that I didn't realize was going to happen. In seeing the changes, in listening to people talk about the changes there and in Spitsbergen, which is, I know, a part of Norway you and I have both been mm-hmm. to. Um, and the way people would say, well, you know, the ice is going away. And the ice is going away. Mm-hmm. And, and I came back from that trip, and I, I, I couldn't settle back into my life as I did before. I kind of tried to. 
And, and I would say that every major decision I've made since that point has been affected by that trip. It got way inside me. And what I'm doing now at Pathfinder came out of a realization that one of our most treasured human rights is also a tremendous way to combat climate change. And that human right to decide whether and when and how many and with whom we want to have a child, um, the ability to exercise that right is as Drawdown shows, uh, one of the top strategies to combat climate change because it enables women to be innovators, women to make different decisions uh, about their lives and about their families. So so like you, it was really seeing that firsthand and, and I think being with my, my, my young sons and thinking about um, the future I wanted for them and kind of like, what was I going to say to them when they were grown, if I didn't invest in this work. John Foley, you know, environmentalists, uh, the, the climate conversation is a lot about smokestacks, tailpipes, uh, chemistry and physics, not a lot about gender issues, mm-hmm. women's reproductive. Uh, you know, top drawdown puts a couple of those are in the top 10, I think, if I get there, you know. Um, so tell me about the inclusion of those and the reception to, whoa, hey, how, you know, oftentimes there's an approach of, oh, population control. Yeah, let's look. Can we all agree that those two words should never be uttered in the same sentence again, um, especially by white men? Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that's kind of silly. And, and Lois is the real expert here, so it's silly for me to talk about that. But we, we did a little bit of the math saying it isn't just the carbon footprint that matters. It's also the number of feet. Right. And uh, so as we think about, you know, are we going to live in a planet of eight billion, nine billion, ten? It will matter. Now, admittedly, a lot of that population growth will be in some of the poorest places of the world uh, where the carbon emissions are far less than, let's say, ours in this room, for example. Uh, But nevertheless, a billion people, more or less, is a billion people, more or less. That's huge. And so we did find that when you think about the things that are really the positive levers for change that also affect uh, reproductive trajectories in the future, like educating girls, access to family planning, things that Lois and others have dedicated their lives to, was also intersected with climate solutions as well. In fact, when we put kind of women and girls' solutions together, they became one of the most powerful things we can do. And it's not just on population, by the way. There's other things that women disproportionately Unfortunately, have a role in smallholder farming, mm-hmm. also in collecting fuel wood and what's cooked at home, food waste, water decisions, things like this. So especially in other, you know, and especially in the developing world. So I think there's a lot more there. But Lois and I have talked about this before. The communities that kind of think about climate change and the communities that think about kind of reproductive health and women's rights. We haven't learned to talk to each other quite yet. We need to kind of come together because we're often talking about very similar issues. And when we discover that, it's very exciting. Kate Brandt, uh, gender equity and opportunity is a big issue in tech. Uh, I'm curious if it, at your work at Google, if the gender conversations are, are separate from the sustainability conversations, if they ever, in, if they ever connect. I think for us, actually, where the issues intersect the most is 
almost all the women leading our sustain, almost all the people leading our sustainability work at Google are women. I, I have noticed this not just at Google, but um, across a lot of women, a lot of people that are leaders in this space, we're increasingly seeing women taking leadership roles. Mm -hmm. um, so I think obviously the tech and gender conversation is critical. It's not part of my remit, but I feel really proud that so many of the people that are leading this work for us and at other companies and at other organizations are women. And what are the, some of the big levers that you have at Google to, to get at greenhouse gas reductions? Because it's so big. What are some of the big levers? Yeah. So for us at Google, we you know have initially really started with our own operations. Um, so really dating back to our founding 20 years ago now, um, our founders have always deeply cared about this issue. And so it's really grown up inside of the company, inside of how we operate the business. And um, some of the big levers we have are how we use energy. So as you probably know, you know all the tools and services we use every day, YouTube and Gmail, um, are run in data centers. And data centers use a lot of energy. Energy. So from the time we started building our first data center um, over a decade ago, we've been laser focused on not only how do we build them as efficiently as possible, but also how do we ultimately move towards clean energy. So we've been carbon neutral since 2007, and we've been on a journey of procuring renewable energy. And so we're now matching 100% of our energy with renewable sources. But along the way, it's been really important to us to figure out how do we drive policy change? How do we enable more clean electrons to get on grids all over the world so that we can not only meet our goal, which is to be 100% renewable, but actually to help green grids to bring down prices so that we can all more move towards a carbon-free future? Greenpeace has a project uh, called Click Clean that evaluates uh, the cloud and data centers of a lot of different businesses, and they issue grades regarding uh, renewable energy, their advocacy, and transparency. And Greenpeace issues grades uh, Netflix, D, Vimeo, D, Hulu, F, <laughs> HBO, D, Amazon Prime, C. They've been a laggard. They've been improving lately. This one hurts. NPR, F. Pandora, F. SoundCloud, F. YouTube, A. So let's give it up for uh, YouTube. Um, hey. Hey. Um, you know, and that's coming from consumer pressure. So, so Kate Brandt, why do those other companies lag so much? I mean, consumers seem to care about this stuff. They're, it's not getting through. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're increasingly seeing a lot of companies doing great work in this space. I, I think we've seen a tremendous uptick across the tech sector in many sectors, but there's clearly a lot of work to be done. And I think hearing that expression from consumers and users that this is important to them is critical because that will move the needle. I think that along with investor interest and interest of employees, this has become an increasingly important topic for employees for attracting and retaining, for attracting retaining talent. So I think, uh, I think we're on the right trajectory, but there's definitely more work to be done in, in the corporate sector. And I think for us too, it's not only how we're operating, but also how we can use our technology to enable everyone to drive action too. So I, I, think, uh, I think we have multiple opportunities. The third rank solution on Project Drawdown's list is reduced food waste. They estimate a 50% reduction of the world's food loss and waste would cut the equivalent of 70 gigatons of carbon 
dioxide emissions. Reducing food waste takes on many different forms. Uh, in developing countries, food often doesn't make it to hungry people because of storage or distribution problems. In the U.S. and other wealthy nations, we simply throw out lots of food. City Harvest rescues high-quality food in New York City that was being discarded in perfect condition, provides it to hungry people. It's been operating for more than 30 years and inspired other organizations around the country. But senior organization specialist Kate McKenzie says it's only been in the last decade that their work is being recognized for its climate-positive effects. Since City Harvest started rescuing food, we've prevented about 600,000 metric tons of methane from being uh, released into the air. And that's the equivalent of taking about 100,000 cars off the street for a year. Really starting in um, you know, 2010, 2011, the movement of connecting the production of food, the way food is grown, the local food movement, and doing more with less as it connects to climate change really started to take hold. I remember having been in the space for a while when it was seen as, well, there's the environmental folks, the food waste side, and then there's just the anti-hunger community. And increasingly, I would say, particularly over the last six to seven years, the two have really merged. So it's no longer a conversation of you either care about food waste or you care about food insecurity. It's a very large problem of hunger. There's a very large problem of food waste. And if we can solve both together, that's fantastic. But the two sides do need to be talking together. That was Kate McKenzie with City Harvest in New York City. Another example of co-solving problems that aren't connected but, right, but, yeah. but can be connected. Now for another take on waste, we turn to middle school student Kia Morshed. After observing how much trash his family produced, Kia decided he was going to do something about it. He joined the Trash on Your Back Challenge and wore his own trash on his back for a week and documented the whole process on YouTube. Kia, come on up. Welcome. Akia, what prompted you to carry your trash on your back for a week? Well, um, I'd say about a year ago, I was walking near the Berkeley Marina, and I saw a big clump of trash there. And that, as well as seeing how much trash me and my family produced in a week, I decided to, uh, to do the trash on your back challenge. And so you, you have this plastic bag, and what was the reaction of some of your friends when you started wearing around this little plastic bag with a couple of pink strings on it um, when you went to middle school with that? You're 13, right? So you went yeah. to middle school. Yeah. How'd that, how'd that play? <laughs> well, I mean, at first, I think most of my friends were actually pretty confused about it. They, <laughs> they, they didn't really know what to say at first, but... Um, and, you know, I got some weird looks from strangers on the bus. But, <laughs> but eventually people started asking me what it was about. And in a way, I felt like I was kind of inspiring people to do this challenge and reduce their waste by seeing how much they use. It, it was a... Uh... It was a conversation starter, so you got to talk to people about their own use. And did any of your friends volunteer to join you? Yes, uh... Yes, I, I had a few friends, and also I encourage everyone here to 
take uh, take part in this challenge as well. So, <laughs> what do you think is the impact of this? What's what what came of it for you? What came of it for people that you interacted with? Well, I think climate change is kind of a depressing kind of a depressing thing, and a lot of people are kind of scared of it. So, I think a challenge like this shows us that we can bring some fun to like reducing our plastic waste, plastic usage, and so uh, yeah, I think. I think that's something I'd like people to take away from a challenge like this. What's next for you? You have a YouTube. You can check them out on YouTube. Oh, yeah. uh, Mike, what's your? Uh, movies with Mike One. And Mike C One. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's give it up for Kia. Thanks for doing this. <laughs> Reactions to the youth and the waste, Lois. Um, congratulations, and thank you for inspiring us. In, in my work uh, for Pathfinder, I get to travel around the world and meet with a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. And I think that the innovation required to combat climate change uh, is in front of us if we can tap into the creativity and talent of all of humanity. And I often get, as, as you're asking, John, you know, why do people, what, how, how is women's empowerment and contraception and family planning connected to climate change? And the most powerful way is that um, if women have the opportunity to be able to be, have a voice and be agents in their community, in their country, globally, we have the opportunity to have the kind of innovation that we need to be able to combat this. Because as we know, and you know a lot about it in this part of the country, innovation often comes from outside the places of power, outside the places that have created the circumstances. It's disruptive. It comes. <laughs> and for most of humanity and in most places, women are, are outside of that and have life experiences and intelligence and creativity to offer to that. Yet it's very difficult to offer that if you don't have the opportunity for contraception. And then if, if I could just add one point which speaks to the number of feet that John referenced is um, globally 45% of all pregnancies are unintended. Mm, wow. And Uh, The best estimate says that if every woman had contraception when she wanted it, and we know hundreds of millions of women want to use contraception and don't have regular access or any access to it, that number would go from 45% unintended to 7% unintended. And the Wittgenstein Institute in Austria just did an analysis of this, and they looked at two different world uh, outcomes. One, where we invest in girls' education, where we invest in family planning, and other ways to build uh, people. And the other, where we principally invest in security and defense and anti-terrorism. And they estimated that in this strategy, where we're investing in people, including family planning, that about the middle of this century, that population would actually go below where it is now, below 7 billion. And in this strategy, where the investment is in security but not in people, that population size will be about double that, around 13 billion. So the opportunity to exercise this right that that we've we've had is so key to 
combating climate change that I wasn't surprised when Drawdown found that that combination of girls' education and family planning was the single highest way to get there. This is about a human right, and it's about everybody's human right to make these kind of decisions about their life and and to have the tools to be able to do that. And from the very beginning, um, Pathfinder is community-based. So I was in Ethiopia last week, uh, and my team in Ethiopia is all Ethiopian. Um, When I go to a... I was recently in Niger, and I was in a village outside of Zinder, Niger, and my team there is from that village. It is not possible to do this work by coming in from the outside, because this work is, is deeply cultural, we don't require our staff to have English. Most of the, uh, our staff have to speak the local language because their job is to work with their neighbors to create the space so that people have options in their life and can exercise their rights. You're listening to a Climate One conversation on doing what it takes to combat climate change. Coming up, using the right tool for the job. The one thing you have to remember about climate change is there isn't one thing (laughs) about climate change. It's a whole bunch of things. We could have different tools for different kinds of problems. And when you do that, I think it becomes a lot clearer what's next and where we need to focus our attention. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about cutting carbon emissions by whatever means necessary. My guests are Jonathan Foley of Project Drawdown, Kate Brandt of Google, and Lois Quam of Pathfinder International. We know that change can happen one person at a time, or even one village at a time, as Lois Quam was telling us earlier. But can that happen fast enough to stabilize the climate that supports our lives and our economy? Jonathan Foley talks about bridging individual change with systemic change. When you think about systems in general, there's an idea like a called fractals. You know, there, there's patterns of organization that happen at all scales. So change doesn't happen just at the top or just at the bottom. It's often from the middle out. And so I think that's a mistake we sometimes make that, you know, yes, one individual out of seven billion just doing it all by themselves may be virtuous, but not very effective. But waiting for the UN for 30 years or Washington to just save us from ourselves that hasn't worked out too well either. And so, um, and it's not going to, you know, frankly, I don't think, we've, I'm done waiting for them. Um, so let's look for other levers. And I think, you know, to really achieve drawdown, um, we looked at a hundred solutions and we actually looked also, it's not in the book, but we looked at the, what we call the level of agency, kind of, you know, what lever gets pulled to make that happen. And sometimes it's international policy, sometimes it's national. Often it's local. Um, some of the most important people in the United States States around climate change are people you've never heard of. They're the people who chair a public utilities commission. Mm -hmm. They're the head of your zoning boards. They're people who are often not, Hal Harvey makes this point a lot too. Mm -hmm. The policy making is often rule based in local communities, states, and counties. And we don't talk about that, but that's huge. But also at the individual level, what you do does matter. This 13-year-old kid just inspired a room full of people. I mean, that mattered a lot. You know, that's what we need more of is do the good stuff, then inspire other people through social media, through talking about it. So our our mutual friend, Catherine Hayhoe, um, who's a wonderful climate uh, communicator and scientist, says the most important thing we can do about climate change is talk about it. 
And she's right, but at the end of the day, it's going to be behavior change by all of us is necessary. It's going to be policy change, business operations change, and changes in capital, money. And we're going to need all of that. Otherwise, we're just fooling ourselves. Don't pick one lever. Pull them all. You know, every bloody one you can find. And also recognize where there are successes and build on them. Uh, For example, we sometimes get really depressed about this stuff, but the U.S. actually hit our peak emissions in 2007, and they've been going down since. We're 15% lower than we were in 2007. It's a little uptick last year, but I think it's temporary. This is amazing. California, we're making huge progress. Uh, We're the fifth largest economy in the world, and we've committed to carbon neutrality completely by 2045, the largest economy on Earth to do so, by the way. Uh, New York uh, State just matched us in this as well. It made it a law, not just an executive order. And if you just take California and New York together, that's a quarter of the U.S. economy, two states. That's not bad. So, you know, you know. So individuals matter, local places matter, cities matter. Basically, it all matters. I know that sounds trite, but it's true. Um, But where the exciting things is where those boundaries start to cross, where individuals like you and others can inspire a bunch of other people, whether they're in business or local policymaking or maybe all the way to Washington or the U.N. We just need all of this all the time merging and mixing together like crazy. And speaking of policy, uh, Kate Brandt, recently there was a number of uh, executives from companies that that went to Washington, D.C., from eBay, Gap, uh, Nike, Microsoft, Salesforce, you know, 421 Fortune 500 companies calling for a carbon price, calling for climate action. Um, Google wasn't part of that. So I'm wondering, you know, how much you engage on policy, because one of the things that um, people like Sheldon Whitehouse and others say in Washington, D.C., is tech companies are great with the consumers, great with innovation. But when they come to D.C., they talk taxes, visas, immigration. Now I think tech is worried about being, being big techs being worried about broken up. Where does climate rank? Yeah, I mean, as I as I mentioned before, we've been engaged on policy for a long time. And I think to John's point, yes, federal policy is, of course, important. But also we've been engaged at the state and local level, working with PUCs, working with utilities to try and push the bounds of access to renewable energy, um, which is greening grids in local places. And equally, you know, we have gotten engaged on federal policy. We signed an amicus brief around the Clean Power Plan. Um, we have engaged at many of the climate negotiations to share businesses perspective on why this makes business sense, why we need to move in this direction. Um, so we are, we absolutely think policy change is a critical piece of it, but we also want to be really strategic about it. We want to use our voice where we think we can have a lot of impact. And so that's going to be in multiple places. Um, but a lot of times it's actually more at a local level. If you're just joining us, we're talking about sustainability at Climate One with John Foley, Executive Director of Project Drawdown, Kate Brandt, Sustainability Officer at Google, and Lois Quam, CEO of Pathfinder International. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, John Foley, I'd like to talk to you about uh, the obstacles to some of the, the drawdown levers and, and, and mind, the mindset, the idea, because this touches on Lois too a little bit, some of the gender issues. You know, uh, Carol Dweck at Stanford has the idea of a growth mindset, fixed mindset. Mm-hmm. So you know, because if humans were just rational and implemented all of the solutions that you identified, we'd get the job done. But that's not happening. So tell us about the mindset <laughs> obstacles. That really sucks, too. I know. It's like, <laughs> that's, 
it's been a real problem. Um, <laughs> so, well, what we look at is, uh, you know, it's, we can throw our arms in the air and say, well, this is the world we'd like to have, but this is the one we do have. And uh, what we need to do, I think, is be just really pragmatic is, you know, and in Drawdown, we looked at, you know, like a hundred different solutions, but they boil down to like five big areas. Um, if you're thinking about how to solve climate change, here's where you start. Electricity is about a quarter of the problem. Food, agriculture, and forest are also a quarter of the problem, but don't get nearly as much attention. Then you've got buildings, industry, and transportation. Those are the five things we get to change. Okay, so electricity, I think, is well underway because uh, it's not policy so much now. It's markets. Solar, wind and batteries are just getting really cheap. Companies like Google are putting billions of dollars into this and scaling it up. That's happening and tipping really beautifully all over the world. Um, We're beating fossil fuels on the market, not because we put a thumb on the scale. They're just better technologies. You know, Amory Lovins used to say, uh, you know, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. (laughs) Um, The coal age didn't end because we ran out of coal. It ended because it's bad technology. So I think electricity, I feel like we're heading in the right direction. But other sectors like uh, food and forestry and land use, we see some good movement, like uh, the video on food waste. That's the best place to start. About a third to you know, half of the food grown on the planet isn't used. So that's a human, a human tragedy as well as an environmental tragedy because it means half of the food resources, land, water, energy, and materials were also wasted. So that's a good place. Diet changes are going to be important. Uh, stopping deforestation, which Google, by the way, revolutionized the way scientists can track deforestation around the world and gave it away for free. You can beat up on big tech, but sometimes they give back in big ways. So I want to acknowledge that. That's huge. Change what my community does hugely. So there are a lot of good things happening. The ones I worry about, though, are around buildings and transportation because there's always a time lag. Today, you might see somebody buying a new Tesla, but for every new Tesla, there's five SUVs being sold today still, right? Or I don't know what the number is, but it's more than five. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be on the road for about 20 years before they end up in a landfill, 17 years in California. That's a long time to wait to turn over the car fleet. And then you think about buildings. This is a beautiful new lead building, but for every new lead building you build, there's thousands and thousands of buildings that are kind of old. What about them? and the deep energy retrofits they'll need, that'll take about 20 years as well. So that's kind of when I look at obstacles, I see where markets are, you know, what, you gotta think like a tech investor, you think about stage gating, like what's the most limiting thing between today and success? Is it policy, is it markets, is it capital, is it rules, is it technology, and so on. And I think we have to knock down domino by domino by domino in very different ways. And we don't, the same tool doesn't work for everything. It isn't a hammer because these aren't all nails. Uh, electricity, it's markets and scaling and investment. And food, I think it is going to be regulatory. We're going to need rules to change food waste and diets, not just good feelings. That's starting it, but we're going to need rules. We're going to need policy change. But maybe they'll be local. I don't know. Uh, we need a lot of attention in the Amazon right now because um, Brazilian deforestation had been going down for decades. And now with the change in government, it may go back up very quickly. If I had $100 million right now, I'd hire a lot of lawyers and descend on Brazil and not leave. Uh, that would be huge. Like save the Amazon from their own government. Uh, it would be huge, working with indigenous communities and uh, uh, environmental groups. So I think there's different tools for different problems. And so when I feel like we're getting stuck, I think we have to zoom in a little bit more and be more granular on the problem. We can't just say climate change has one solution. 
Um, our, our founder is a guy named Paul Hawken, and he likes to say, the one thing you have to remember about climate change is there isn't one thing <laughs> about climate change. It's a whole bunch of things. Hmm. And so let's learn, let's click down one more click and go from climate change to, oh, it's electricity. That's the tool for electricity. It's food, it's buildings, it's cars, and it's industry. We could have different tools for different kinds of problems. And when you do that, I think we, it becomes a lot clearer what's next and where we need to focus our attention. Well, Kwan, what are the obstacles yeah. that are pre uh, preventing women from having the agency and, and human rights that, that you, mm -hmm. you've, you've identified? Well, I think for many women around the world, um, it is not having reliable and regular access to family planning and not being able to be educated. Uh, I think about a, a recent experience I had in, in rural Niger, just outside of Zinder, uh, Niger, and, and I was meeting with a group of 15-year-old young women, uh, and they were all married, and they had all had their first child. And so they didn't have the chance to grow up uh, before, they, before they had their first child, before they were married. They didn't have the chance to, to get a high school-level education. And they were intelligent and creative and interesting people. And uh, the expression on their face when my colleague, who's part of their community, uh, my Pathfinder colleague, was sharing with them in, in Hausa, in their local language, the fact that they could wait to welcome their second child. Because historically, many young girls have had two children in the space of a year uh, when they're first married. But the, the, the look on their face, the sort of light on their face with this idea that they could wait a couple years before they welcome their second child. So one of the things, and John and I have talked about this, that's um, really challenging is in the, in the case of family planning, we have the technology and we know how to implement it. It can't be this outside invasion. It has to be mm -hmm. in the community. But we've done this work at Pathfinder for decades and decades and decades. So why hasn't it happened? I think the first thing that time and attention and money is, does not go to the places that really matter to women. Uh, the work that really matters the most to women is always underinvested. And so often it becomes a, a sort of private matter for a woman to find her way through. Um, and... This is a moment that I think each of us, men and women in this country, have had the opportunity to have these services, have to reflect on the difference it's made in our own life, and give the opportunity to another girl or boy or man and woman elsewhere in the world who has the same energy and hopes and dreams for their life that, that we have. And I think that now is a moment that companies and individuals in the environmental movement and the reproductive health movement, we need to come together to get this done, to put the resources in place to get this proven technology in the hands of every person. Because it makes no sense that today 45% of pregnancies are unintended. You know, it is up to us to step forward to create this opportunity for others because the innovation to address all the challenges that John pointed out, it exists. It needs to be unleashed around the world. And half of humanity, uh, women, 
need to be fully at the table. A little more than half, actually. If you're just joining us, we're talking yeah. about uh, lots of things. <laughs> climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Lois Quam, CEO of Pathfinder International, Kate Brandt, Sustainability Officer at Google, and John Foley, Executive Director of Project Drawdown. We're going to go to a lightning round with true or false questions for our guests. Okay. True or false, uh, Kate Brandt, greenwashing is prevalent in Silicon Valley. Hmm... I would say no. In my experience, I think there's actually kind of an allergic reaction to greenwashing, certainly for us at Google, but I think at other, I think at other companies in Silicon Valley, too. Uh, true or false, Kate Brandt, the U.S. Navy made more progress on clean energy during the Obama administration than any other part of the federal government. True. <laughs> uh, John Foley, true or false, climate philanthropy is well-targeted and effective. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, it is sometimes, and it could be better. Um, I'm going to weasel out of that one. Um, true or false, Kate Brandt, Google used to sell ads that showed hoax or other information when people search for climate change. I don't believe so. Okay. Um, John Foley, true or false, the Green New Deal is realistic and viable. Oh, gosh. Um <laughs> No, uh, it could be at the local level, but at the federal level, I think it's more of an organizing principle and needs some work, but it will, it will inspire lots of other actions, which would be great. Lois Quam, true or false, uh, the Catholic Church is one of the biggest obstacles to women recognizing full rights over their bodies and reproductive choices. One of the biggest... Um, we actually work with Catholic communities in Africa and make real progress. Uh, and we work with uh, religious leaders. We've, we, we organize the writing of the Quranic Guide to Family Planning. So um, our... It's not a monolith, of course, the Catholic Church. It's a big thing. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Our, our strategy is to work with religions to create these rites. So, nice so, way to say, yeah. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. Let's give them a round of applause for getting through the lightning round. <laughs> You're listening to a conversation about finding solutions to climate change. Coming up, can we be smarter with water? I used to be a professor for 20 years, and I used to ask my students, could you invent a machine that wastes water faster than center pivot irrigation? <laughs> <laughs> In 20 years, nobody's done it. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about big and small changes that could help us win the battle against climate change with Kate Brandt of Google, Lois Quam of Pathfinder International, and Jonathan Foley of Project Drawdown. All the Democratic presidential candidates this year favor action on climate, with many of them voicing support for the aspirational Green New Deal. Is all that newfound awareness a good thing for progress, or does the theater of politics distract from actually getting things done? It's always good when you hear climate change on anything. I'm happy. You know, that's good. I'm really glad that this is happening in Washington, uh, finally, uh, or maybe another wave of it. Uh, AOC, for example, has been you know, amazing on this issue in terms of raising the, uh, the level of rhetoric. And the Green New Deal has been a great organizing principle around that. Uh, but I do worry if we all put our eggs in that basket of like, oh, we'll wait for Washington to save us. 
I have these kind of flashbacks to 2008, where we had a popularly elected, you know, Barack Obama with a very large majority in the Senate and the House, and you guys were there. And we still couldn't pass a climate deal then when it was a very easy political landscape compared to today. So I, I just don't think a single master stroke of legislation of a Green New Deal signed by, you know, um, this president or maybe any, uh, is going to happen right away. So we're going to have to look for local and state things in the meantime. And the U.S. is making progress. You know, coal, whether Trump says coal is back, doesn't matter. Coal's gone. It's not going to. So a lot of these things are just going to happen anyway. And so I think we, um, it's great to have this political rhetoric in, in Washington, but I think we get seduced by it a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of kind of beltway head in the media, and there's a lot of... Um, you know, Eisenhower warned us about the military-industrial complex. I think we're much more in danger of the media-political complex today. Um, not here. <laughs> but, you know, we kind of we just hear a lot of barking and not a lot of action, especially in D.C., and it's covered constantly, and it's stressing us all out. I, I think I'd rather you know, get my hands dirty doing something real uh, right now in your community, in your state, and see what can happen. And let's start tipping the scales wherever we can. With that said, we definitely need every national capital to be part of this conversation as well. We just can't wait for them anymore. Uh, we're, you know, mm. And Washington has never really led on big issues like this, like marriage equality, other things. It happens at other levels and finally arrives at Washington later. So let's continue that. Mm-hmm. It's a larger social movement, as Lois is saying. And let's make sure that happens and is received by Washington, not led by Washington. Well, Kate Brandt, a lot of businesses are not waiting for policy. They're moving for economic and self-interested reasons. So you can, I'd like to hear you on that. And also whether you're know, operating in other countries, because other countries have not slowed down like the U.S. has. You Europe is going forward. Uh, other countries, you know, China's moving forward. So do you see leadership in other countries? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I, I've been incredibly heartened by the amount of action that we're seeing by businesses. You know, we recently were founders of an organization called REBA, the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. And this is um, about 200 companies that have come together to push for getting about 60 gigawatts of renewable energy on the grid in the U.S. by 2025. And along the way, engaging with policymakers and driving this change together. So that is a great example of where we're seeing business action that's really driving change. And you're absolutely right. In Europe, for example, they're much further along on climate policy, and we have the ability to do even more there to um, enter into new kinds of uh, joint agreements with many companies to get wind onto the grid. And, And nonetheless, still we're there to make our voice heard with policymakers that this is an important business priority for us, that we're seeing not only that this is good for us because it enables us to operate as a clean energy company, but also it's enabling there to be positive change and business sense. This makes sense for us from a hedging our prices. We're locking in long-term prices of clean energy. That has a very strong business case for us. So I think that's tremendously important. Also, I think there's a huge role for technology companies and other companies to enable policymakers. So some of the work that we've mm-hmm. done that I'm the most proud of is creating tools for policymakers that give them the ability to drive change. So one great example is a tool that we launched last year called the Environmental Insights Explorer. This is for cities, not big cities, wonderful cities like San Francisco that have whole teams that can work on climate action planning, but for smaller and medium-sized cities who don't have the capacity to 
to do a greenhouse gas inventory to set climate goals. So we're trying to create tools that are freely available to enable policymakers to drive that change in their own cities. We're going to go to our audience questions. We're talking about uh, sustainability and drawdown at Climate One. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, Lori Sinsley, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, this uh, question is really for Jonathan. Uh, one of the things that you talked about was capital as a lever mm -hmm. and um, finding solutions that work and building upon them. And then your other comment about philanthropy could be more effective. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in finding out um, how to identify projects, solutions that are working um, to invest in. Funny you should ask that. Um, so well, you're, you're in the most important city in the world uh, for climate philanthropy. A lot of the big foundations that fund climate philanthropy are here. There's also a consortium of the largest of the climate funders called Climate Works, which is right here in San Francisco. And they've launched another initiative called the Climate Leadership Initiative, which is trying to get you know, ultra high net worth individuals, many from tech, to become climate philanthropists. Because there's about a billion dollars a year now, I believe, in climate philanthropy. It should be 10, it should be 100. Uh, that's more than venture funding, by the way, in energy and climate. Uh, philanthropy is far more important than venture funding right now in terms of absolute dollars. Both need to radically increase. So that's really, really important. But what I worry about is a lot of them, you know, about 80% of the money is going to 20% of the atmosphere. Uh, so much of it is going into electricity and batteries because that's a nice tech problem not into women and girls at all, as I mentioned, or food waste, or um, you know, like uh, shifting diets, although impossible meats and beyond, or impossible foods beyond meats are getting a lot of attention now as a plant-based substitute. So I think we need to kind of align the money with the physics. And so one of the things we're trying to do in Drawdown 2.0, uh, we're going to be developing a lot of investor guides and philanthropy guides saying, hey, you should all, if you're going to spend a billion dollars on climate change, maybe you should stop and think about the physics and the chemistry for just 20 minutes. So just like a little course, like here's where the gases come from. Here's where you might want to think about your investments. Again, I think there's a lot of just education and connecting the dots and building kind of a Rolodex so people can help each other. And that's where we're going to make some big, big differences. And San Francisco's ground zero for that. It's going to be great. Next question. Welcome. I had a comment, and I'd like to see what you think about this. Um, uh, I met Naomi Klein in New York, and I said, I think the American people are negotiating with our leaders. And the American people's point of view is that if climate change is so bad, why are you all still flying around? Uh, and I had suggested a no-fly Wednesday, uh, where all commercial airliners not fly every Wednesday. It could be a, it could be a Sabbath, a, uh, a flying Sabbath. Um, and, I, and I wrote to the, a lot of airlines, and they, they were polite, but it's not... <laughs> But I'm curious Thank what you, you. What the you idea think about of, of personal action. We're all conflicted. People fly, right, John? Yeah, yeah. I think that yeah that's what I'm, you know, for the average climate scientist, folks, you know, definitely flying is the biggest single part of their personal carbon footprint, no question. Uh, but when you look at the whole atmosphere, uh, aviation, all the planes in the world is about 1% of our emissions. So, but it's getting far more than... It's growing quickly, though. This is true. Uh, but I think the benefits of international travel and learning about the world are pretty good. There's a lot of really stupid things in a minute, like food waste. Nobody benefits from that. Mm. Or mm. clear-cutting the Amazon. Like, we don't... But fly... You know, I think it's good that people see other countries. With that said, aviation has gotten more efficient. The fuel efficiency of the per-passenger mile has doubled in the last 20 years. And there will have to be alternative ways to fly. I don't think just telling people you can't do something that's really great 
is a good solution uh, when there might be other technologies. You know, there will be some electrification of uh, small planes. That can be, there can be battery-powered small planes. Long ones will have to be some kind of sustainable aviation fuel. I think we're clever enough to be able to do that. I w I'd like to live in a world where people can still be interconnected and visit each other without destroying the atmosphere. So let's figure that out, because I, I don't think sacrifice is a good way to build a future, because people aren't going to do it. Next question, please. Hi. I'll I was in Montana at Yellowstone National Park a couple of years ago, and we had a presentation by a hydrologist. And I asked him, I said, since we have this big problem with water, why do I see these farmers and ranches having this big spray uh, kind of what, watering system when they know that a third of that water is going to evaporate before it hits the ground? And he said, it's because they know if they do not use all their water, they won't get the same allotment for the following year. So what do we do about that? Water policy in the U.S. is just insane. I'm sure Greg can mention this. Um, so just FYI, in the world, 70% of the water we take out of nature is used to do one thing, irrigate crops and pastures. It's 85% of the water we take out of nature and doesn't come back to the same watershed. So to first approximation, all the water we use in the world is food. Uh, some of that's for very good use. Some of it's not. Um, I used to be a professor for 20 years, and I used to ask my students for 20 years, could you invent a machine that wastes water faster than center pivot irrigation? <laughs> in, <laughs> in 20 years, nobody's done it. Um, no, seriously, it's like it's designed. I mean, it's a 45 degree angle in the sun, the middle of the day with little. I mean, like, oh, my God, these are evaporation machines. It evaporates more water than an open swimming pool. Um, you're laughing, but it's true. Uh, so but the Israelis can grow uh, the same amount of calories with one tenth the water we do in the U.S. We're using drip irrigation, tenfold increase, not 50 percent. You know, a tenfold increase. Mm. But we in the U.S. are about ten times more efficient delivering a calorie with the same amount of water as India does because they tend to mm -hmm. flood entire huge mm -hmm. fields with relatively low productivity crops except rice. Mm -hmm. So there's a hundredfold difference between, let's say, somebody in Pakistan and India versus Israelis. So we can solve this problem. The good thing about being really dumb with water and dumb with energy is you can stop. Mm. <laughs> that's good. Uh, so uh, that's the good news. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> let's go to our next question. Thank you very much. We talked about transportation as an important thing that we need to reduce. And it's a slippery slope in that fossil fuel companies have been supplying the demand. But the fossil fuel companies will tell you that they're providing to the market. And that is true. And which is first? How are we going to address that? How do we stop this um, cycle of SUVs versus EVs uh, in the United States as well as th throughout the rest, of the rest of the world, particularly China? Thank you. Um, there's no viable scenario, John Foley, that doesn't include fossil fuels decades from now. I mean, fossil fuels are amazing in a lot of ways. It's just really too, it really stinks that CO2 is like messing with our climate because fossil fuels are like the most energy dense thing you can have. Uh, they can contain more energy in a pound of gasoline than you could ever put in a battery. Other than like nuclear materials, gasoline and petroleum are amazing substances. So it's kind of a, they're, they're really wonderful in some ways. But then there's the cost. 
And so we have to figure out new ways to you know, do transportation. Electric cars are one way, but designing better cities in the first place where people can just walk would be a whole lot better. And so this is where European cities are doing better things with bike lanes. You can't add bike lanes without taking out a car lane. San Francisco still hasn't learned that, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> Go to Portland or Minneapolis or Boston, and you can see how American cities can get biking right. Uh, we haven't yet, but we can do that kind of stuff, or the little scooters or whatever. We're going to have to figure out new ways of getting around. But the good thing is we still want to get around. There can be electric cars, but I think we need to think completely differently about mobility. Uh, the, the solutions do exist. That's the good news. There are ways to do this, but we're going to still be using at least some fossil fuels for quite a while, but it'll be dramatically less uh, in order to escape the climate crisis. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about paths to cutting carbon emissions on individual and systemic levels. My guests were Jonathan Foley, Executive Director of Project Drawdown, Kate Brandt, Sustainability Officer with Google, and Lois Quam, U.S. Chief Executive Officer for Pathfinder International. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>